0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our Father, thank you for all the many things that you give us. And Lord, I ask that you would bless us now as we study together. Help us to understand the things which you set before us, and in all that we do, to bear in mind the fact that we together in this church serve our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we ask that in all that we think, and in all that we say, and in all that we do, we may honor and glorify his name. For his name's sake we ask it. Amen. Well, the last two weeks that we had uh, together, I spent uh, talking really about Anglican history uh, and so on down to the Reformation. And what I want to do today is sort of bring things together a bit and look at the uh, distinctiveness of the Anglican tradition. All right, what is the Anglican tradition and how do we (coughs) recognize it? uh, What do we make of it? Uh, And what I've done is... I've chosen the 39 articles of religion, which you'll find in your prayer books. If you have any, every prayer book will have it at the back somewhere. Um, And these are the sort of statements of faith, the basic statements of faith that set out uh, the distinctiveness of Anglicanism. Well, we're not going to be able to go through all 39, of course, uh, today. I don't know how many we'll actually look at. But I want to uh, give you at least uh, a framework, a structure, uh, so so that you can understand uh, what they are. Um, The articles, as you see them written down in a book, just go from 1 to 39, no distinction, Uh, you know, one after the other. But if you look at it carefully, you can analyze them, you can break them down into different categories. And the first eight uh, of these articles are what I would call the Catholic Articles. Now when I say Catholic Articles, of course I don't mean specifically Roman Catholic Articles, that's a different thing. Um, But uh, Catholic in the sense of universal, that is to say that they were intended to be a statement of the universal Christian faith. Uh, that everybody, whether they are Catholic, Protestant, or whatever they are, uh, would recognize uh, as uh, as theirs, more or less. Uh, You know, that they would uh, would resonate uh, with them. And the purpose, the reason for this, of course, was that the uh, people who composed these articles at the time of the Reformation wanted to reassure everybody, I suppose you would have to say, wanted to confess that uh, the Anglican Church is not a sect, Uh, it's not a cult, Uh, it's not something that is a breakaway uh, you know from the Christian Church in general um, uh, or anything like that. It is a particular manifestation of orthodox Christianity, that is to say of mainline, you know, normal Christianity and these eight articles, the first eight articles are meant to uh, re- reaffirm that. Now having said that, it is true uh, that the Anglican tradition uh, receives the, the, the Catholic faith, the, 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 the universal Christian faith, in a particular way. Uh, and that is of course true of all churches. There's no church that, of, of which that is not the case. Uh, And so, uh, we're not uh, exceptional in that respect, Uh, but we do have to at least situate ourselves uh, in the bigger picture. Now, the first distinction that we have to make is to say that Anglican Christians are what we call Western Christians as opposed to Eastern Christians. (coughs) Now, you may say, well, what's the difference? What's that all about? To understand that, you have to go back to the Roman Empire. If you think of the Roman Empire covering the whole of the Mediterranean world. But if you look at, if you can picture this in your mind, um, there's a Western Mediterranean and there's an Eastern Mediterranean. And the Eastern Mediterranean, countries like Greece, Egypt, Syria, Palestine, now Israel, of course, and what is now Turkey, but Turkey didn't exist in those days. Um, uh, but you know that, that part of the world constitutes the East, all right? And in that area, uh, the Greek language was uh, the, the m- most important language in ancient times, uh, in the ti- the, during the first uh, centuries of the origins of Christianity. The New Testament is written in Greek. Most of the early church writers, uh, the the fathers, as we call them, wrote in Greek. uh, Sometimes because it was either their mother tongue or because it was the way in which they could communicate most easily with other people. The Western Mediterranean, on the other hand, that is to say Italy, Spain, Portugal, what is now France, um, this uh, was Latin speaking, different, all right? Uh, it was focused on Rome uh, and uh, this was true of course even in, uh, in biblical times, in the New Testament times, it was, the, it, it was like that. Um, and uh, the, the Romans technically were Latin speakers originally at least, you see they're coming from Italy and indeed in those countries today, the languages spoken there, Italian, Spanish, Portuguese, French, are descendants of Latin, they are Latin languages, uh, and we talk about Latin America and so on, you see, to remind us of that, uh, that link, that connection. It's a different culture, it's a different way of thinking. Now, in the early Christian period, well, as time went on, the Roman Empire broke up, the Eastern part stayed together. Uh, more readily in a uh, a new kind of empire. It called itself the Roman Empire. We call it the Byzantine Empire centered on Constantinople or as it's now called Istanbul. Uh, The Western Empire broke up completely and gave rise to the modern states of Europe, you know, France, Italy and so on uh, that we have uh, nowadays. It's a long story and I'm, you know, uh, condensing it more than I should perhaps, but there we are. Um, what it has left theologically uh, in, 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 or in, in terms is a different mentality and this is something which you have to try to understand. I give you a couple of examples. If you go to Athens, in Greece that is, not Athens, Alabama, um, and uh, you go in the metro, the, the, the subway station, there'll be s- there are signs, you see, there are two signs. There's one in Greek for the locals and there's one in English for the international people, you see, for people who, uh, who aren't local. And this sign will tell you what to do, you see, how to buy your ticket and how to use your ticket uh, on the train. And what it w- says is, uh, or, well, something like, um, take your ticket, buy your ticket from the machine and then validate it by putting it through the, the, the machine, you know, the, and the gate will open and then you can walk through and get on the train. But the word I want you to concentrate on is validate, all right? Because the unused ticket is, is not valid for travel, all right? You have to put it through the machine, get it stamped the, by the machine, and then the gate will open and you can get on and ride the train. That validates the train. That's what the English sign says, okay? Now the Greek sign, which you probably won't be able to read, doesn't say that. The Greek sign says, take your ticket and invalidate it. Because, to their mind, the unused ticket is valid because you can use it anytime anywhere you know whatever you want if you put it through the machine and go through it stamps the machine and that invalidates it meaning you can't use it again you see what i mean it's no longer usable a second time now the uh, the activity that is being described is of course exactly the same i mean You know, you put the ticket in, the gate opens, you walk through, you get on the train. Whether you're Greek or whether you're foreign, it's the same thing, all right? But the way that you think about it, is this validating the ticket or is this invalidating the ticket? This is a difference of mentality. See, it's a difference of the way you think about something. It's like, is the glass half full or is the glass half empty? You know, it's the same thing but seen from a different perspective. All right, so that's the first thing you need to understand about the difference between East and West. And of course, the Eastern churches that we know today, these are like the Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, and so on. If you go to one of them, all you have to do is walk in the door and you see immediately how different it is. Uh, You know, it's just not like your church. Uh, it, it, it looks different, it feels different, and, uh, and so on. Um, another example, which is more to do with the church itself, we talk about sacraments. Um, the word sacrament comes, is Latin word, sacramentum. It means oath. And it was originally used of baptism, because baptism was an oath. It was pledging allegiance to Jesus Christ you see that's how it was understood Uh, and uh, the word was taken over and then gradually extended to other things as well uh, you see as a a sacrament. Um, And in the Western Church of course there's big argument uh, about how many sacraments there are uh, because the Roman Catholic Church will say there are seven uh, most Protestant churches will say there are two and people argue back and forth about this. Well, all right. But if you move over to the Eastern Church, they don't have a word for sacrament. What's a sacrament? You know, there is no such word. And you say, well, they have baptism and they have communion and they have, you know, uh, matrimony and so on. Well, yes, they do. But if you if they have to have a word for this, they call it something different. They call it mysterion or mystery. You see why? because they think to themselves, well, this is somehow God is at work in the world. The infinite uh, God, uh, eternal God, has come into the world of time and space and made himself known to us. How does this happen? What does this mean? It's a mystery, you know. Uh, And you ask Greek people or ask the Orthodox people this that's what they will say you see it's a mystery you can't define this You know Uh, we know that it happens, but we don't know quite how it happens You know it's like I suppose in this country when you have elections I mean how do the people who get elected actually get elected? You know where do they come from? It's a mystery (laughs) 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 You know uh, We don't know um, so, uh, you, you see what I mean? They, they, they think like this, all right? Uh, so, be aware of this. I mean, they may do the same things as we do. I mean, you can get baptized in the Greek Orthodox Church. You can get baptized in, in our church, the same baptism. But the way they think about it, you see, the, the mindset is different, all right? Uh, and so be Uh, be conscious of this. This is the basic difference between West and East. Now within the Western tradition uh, we are, the Anglican uh, Church is Protestant, not Roman Catholic. This of course comes from the 16th century, the time of the Reformation, the break with Rome. Until that time of course the Church of England was part of the Western Church. Uh, In other words The Catholic Church uh, of the West. Latin speaking, Latin thinking uh, in in many ways. Uh, And in the 16th century with a break uh, with this, um, a division occurred uh, which in broad terms is Protestant versus Catholic. And uh, in the arguments and so on that took place at that time, on the whole the Church of England, the Anglican Church, took the side of Protestants against Rome. Not always and not in everything, but generally speaking that was the case. You see and of course today uh, that remains the case. So that even when we do things and have things in our church that look very similar to the Roman Catholic Church. For example, we have bishops and uh, the the way our church is organized is similar to the Roman Catholic Church. Nevertheless, uh, th- there are differences. And of course, the obvious difference is that the clergy are allowed to get married, uh, which is not true uh, in the Roman Catholic Church. I and mean, that's an obvious difference. Uh, but that's really a superficial thing. Uh, I mean, it goes much deeper than that, uh, the whole way of thinking. Uh, About the nature of the church about the nature of the relationship between clergy and laity about the sacraments uh, and and so on It's all tied up uh, together with 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 this Uh, So uh, while we may do the same things on the surface. It may look similar uh, To the outside observer um, It's actually not the same Uh, and of course the Roman Catholic Church uh, will tell you this Um, you know an Anglican priest or an Anglican bishop is not recognized By the Roman Catholic Church as being legitimate Um, uh, you you know they have to be reordained or or whatever um, uh, you know to be accepted so uh, so there are barriers there Uh, I mean er, nowadays of course everybody's terribly friendly and uh, you you know nice to one another and so on which is a a good thing Uh, but uh, but there are these differences which remain uh, and which we need to be aware of now within the Protestant churches, of course as we know, there are many different kinds of Protestant, all right? um, and we could we could spend forever t- trying to look at this, but um, just to say that there are basically three different types um, uh, of Protestant. You have Lutherans uh, on the one side who are, would be perhaps more conservative in relation to uh, to Roman Catholicism at least, you have the, the so-called reformed churches, like Presbyterians uh, and so on. And then you have uh, the Anabaptist-type churches, like the Baptists and so on, um, uh, you know, who are a, a different uh, uh, tradition altogether. And all of these go back to the 16th century. Now, choosing among these, um, the Anglican Church, the Church of England, is reformed, not Lutheran and not Anabaptist, all right? Um, and uh, you, you see this again in, uh, in the way of thinking. Um, I'll talk about this in the, the way of doing things. It doesn't mean to say uh, that we don't have good relations with these other churches. It doesn't mean to say that we don't mix and mingle in certain uh, respects. But nevertheless, uh, uh, our interests, our, uh, our emphases uh, tend to be different. Um, I have Lutheran colleagues at, at Beeson Divinity School and one of them asked me one time, uh, so what's the difference between Lutheran and Anglican? And I said, well, Anglicans are Lutherans who have a sense of humor. <laughs> and you know he didn't laugh, <laughs> which just proved the point, didn't it, really? Um, so, uh, so there you go. Um, uh, but there are, there are these differences that, you know, which may be very subtle in some ways. Uh, but uh, but are nevertheless there and then finally uh, within the reformed tradition uh, the Anglican uh, churches are Episcopal in structure not Presbyterian and not Congregationalist. Uh, We have bishops, we have uh, uh, you know that kind, well you know what, uh, what, what that's like how it works we have diocese and so on, like the Catholic Church, we're very similar in that respect. Um, we're not Presbyterian, uh, what is the difference? Presbyterians uh, also have connections, a uh, connectional way of thinking. In other words, they, they, d- they would divide say Alabama, I don't know, I don't really know, but I mean, I think it would be a a district, a presbytery uh, and so on and and the ministers uh, who are appointed to the different churches would all uh, belong to the presbytery and they would collectively govern the church so that individual congregations would come under the authority of this presbytery. We don't operate like that. Congregationalists uh, are like the Baptists are congregationalists in that each congregation constitutes an independent church. So a Baptist church can, can associate with other Baptist churches if they want to uh, or, or not. You know, they can, they can move in and out uh, of different associations and so on, but maintain their own uh, property, their own uh, integrity as congregations. It's a different way of doing things, all right? But this is to do with church government more than it is to do with doctrine or something like that. It may have, there may be doctrinal implications to this, of course, uh, here and there, but that's the basic thing. So, to, to recapitulate here, we are Western, we are Protestant, we are Reformed, we are Episcopal, all right, in that order uh, of descending, uh, as I said, descending importance of historical uh, development. Now, in this hierarchy, if you like, of, of things, uh, the 16th century uh, was the definitive time, the, ref- the, the, the Protestant Reformation, because it was from that time that the Anglican Church, as we know it today, acquired an independent existence. All right? uh, it broke with, uh, with Rome. But in doing this, as I say it didn't break with uh, with the faith, with the Catholic faith as it had been uh, understood and inherited to that time. And the first article of religion makes this clear because the first article of religion talks about the doctrine of God. And this is, well, it's very important of course because uh, God is the foundation of everything. If you don't believe in God, uh, you might find it difficult to belong to a church. I know uh, the Anglican world has plenty of people in it who don't belong to believe in God, uh, but th- th- they're kind of interlopers, they shouldn't be here. You know, we're just generous, we let them in, uh, and so on, because they want to get out of the rain, but, uh, <laughs> but, but you know, we don't, um, uh, we don't accept this really. It's a, it's, it's, it's a problem uh, that we have. However, uh, the the doctrine of God in the first uh, article of religion is subdivided uh, and again this goes back to the Middle Ages, it goes back to pre-Reformation time, um, into the one God and the Trinity, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, the one and the three, right, And when you talk about God as one, you are talking about what God is. Basically, it's what God is. Uh, So God is invisible, God is immortal, uh, uh, God is infinite, all these things, you see. And uh, that applies to the one God. Uh, uh, There is only one God. When we talk about three, God is three, we're talking about who God is. Not what God is, but who God is. And God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And these are three persons within the one God. (coughs) Now, how do we understand this? We understand this as a fellowship or community of love. Because the great Saint Augustine in the 4th century sort of explained this, uh, and we've generally followed this um, as we've gone on, love is not something that you can have in isolation if there was only one person in the world there would be no love because to love you have to love somebody or something you see it it implies this and so God is love means that within God there, there must be somebody to love, and somebody who is loved. And Augustine says, well this is what we see, the father is the one who loves the son, and the son loves the father back, you see, in, 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 in return. And this love is equal, has to be equal. Because if the father loves the son, but the son doesn't love the father back, you have an imbalance this is unrequited love. Now of course in human life unfortunately that is possible, I mean it is possible for a parent to love a child but the child doesn't love the the parent back again, I mean it's unfortunate but it can happen but in God of course it can't happen because God is perfect and so the love that the father has for the son and the son has for the father is perfect and this love is communicated to us; it is known to us in the third person who is the Holy Spirit who brings who 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 binds the Father and the son together in love, and who brings the love of the Father and the Son to us. You see uh, and uh, you see this in the New Testament in Galatians chapter four and verse six, where the apostle Paul says, "Because you are sons." God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So it is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts by faith that unites us with the the Father and the Son and binds us uh, to the Trinity, gives us an understanding of this. That the Trinity, people seem to think the Trinity is some kind of abstract idea. It's not. It's an expression of the experience of God that we have in our hearts um, and therefore is very important for that reason. Now the next three articles, 2, 3, and 4, deal with the doctrine of Christ. And here again, we are one with, with all Christians, uh, wherever they are, whether they're Catholic, Orthodox, whatever they are. Um, uh, we believe the same thing, uh, which is uh, that Uh, God has, the Father has sent His Son, the Son has come into the world to become a man in Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And what does this mean? Uh, It means uh, that uh, Christ, Jesus Christ who lived on earth is God in human flesh on the one hand but he has two natures, all right? He has his divine nature and he has his human nature. And these two natures are distinct, Uh, they are complete in themselves, they don't mix, they're uh, they're not mixed and mingled uh, or anything like that, they are separate uh, in one sense, they are distinct, but they are united in his person. Now, this is a very important thing, because uh, what we're saying here is uh, that the Son of God, who is a person in God, one of the persons of the Godhead, chose, he volunteered, to come to earth, you see, it was the Father's will to send him, but he didn't come unwillingly, that's important to stress this, because uh, those of you who are parents know that it's possible to tell your children to do something when they don't want to do it. Uh, and this is not the case, um, uh, you know, with, with the, the Son of God. Uh, he wanted to do it. He wanted to come because he was had the love of the Father in him for us. You see, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, but the only begotten Son Wanted to come himself because he had that same love in him and So he comes into the world uh, in this way. You see the uh, the son of God uh, in love, Uh, but he is in effect taking on himself a second nature a Human nature why because coming into the world. What did he come to do? He came to live our life And to die a human death now God in himself can't do that because God is infinite God is immortal God you know God is not human so in order to die for you and me on the cross if God was going to do that he had to become one of us but to become one of us to become a human being meant taking on a second nature a new nature but he He's the same person, the Son of God. Now you may think this is hard to understand. Uh, how how, How do we understand this? What do we make of this? Well, let me put it like this. You and I will also have a new nature one of these days. If you don't believe me, look at 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Uh, and read from around verses 35 to 58, something like that, where the Apostle Paul talks about what will happen when we die. You see, what will happen when we die is that the human nature that we have now, the nature, you know, this flesh and blood that we have now, will disintegrate, it will disappear. But we will come back with a spiritual body, as the Apostle says. He says, what's the spiritual body like? Well we don't really know, uh, but uh, you know it will be a new body, it will be a new identity that we will have uh, in this respect, but we will be the same persons. And it's important that we should be the same persons because if we're not the same persons then it's not us that's coming back, you know. And you may say, well how can this happen? Well, you know, how does a caterpillar become a butterfly? I don't know, you know. I I know it happens and they're the same, uh, but uh, this is what's going to happen to us. So although we will have a new nature, we will have a different nature in the course of time, you see, when we die and, 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 and rise again, we will still be the same persons. When it comes to Jesus, you see Jesus Christ coming down in, into the world, he had his two natures simultaneously, at the same time. And his person, his divine person, could operate in one or the other according to choice, according to his will. How does this work? How could he do this? Well, again, it's hard to say, but I would <laughs> put it like this. If you know people who are of two nationalities you know let's say the the father is American and the mother is Mexican say and this child grows up speaking English and Spanish together all right the child doesn't necessarily know which of those two he's speaking And you might not know either. You see, you meet this child uh, and this, uh, let's say it's here. Uh, This child, as far as you're concerned, speaks English. There must be English speaking, that's fine. And then one day, you know, mother phones and says, you know, you've got to come home to dinner or whatever mothers say. Um, You know, you're out too late and the usual sort of thing. Um, But she talks to him in Spanish. And this kid whom you played with, you know, uh, suddenly speaks back on the phone in Spanish and you might be surprised and you say, well, how do you do that? You know, how do you switch from one to the other? And then you can ask these people, well, what language do you dream in? You know, do you dream in English? Do you dream in Spanish? Poor little kid probably has no idea. Uh, You know, he just said, well, I talked to my dad this way and I talk to my mother this way and that's always been like that and that's how we do it. Um, You know, and it's only as he grows up that he becomes aware that actually they're two different things. uh, And that other people can't do what he does. You see what I'm trying to say? Like uh, other people are surprised by this. Does this mean that a child who can do this is a freak? No you know uh, such a such a child is perfectly normal uh like anybody else but they just have this ability to do this and i think that jesus was something like this you see that he grew up in nazareth and as far as the people in nazareth were concerned he was one of them and uh but then you see the time comes when he has to go and do his ministry and he becomes he, he, he starts going around and he goes back to Nazareth you read the story in Luke's gospel he goes to Nazareth and he preaches in the synagogue and tells the people of Nazareth who he really is you know uh, that he's the son of God come to save the world and they react they say who do you think you are we know who you are you're Joseph the carpenter's son get out of here um, you know, and they basically cha- ran him out of town. Well, he got out of town, they wanted to kill him. Uh, but, but you see what I mean. Uh, they, couldn't un- they couldn't accept that. They couldn't understand that, that there was a dimension to Jesus that they were unaware of. So Jesus didn't appear to other people as odd. Uh, or as freakish in some way but he was different in this respect all right uh, that uh, he, he was fully God and fully man and this is what we believe and as I say all Christians believe this you know it doesn't matter wh- what whether you're Baptist or Presbyterian or Greek Orthodox or whatever you are we all believe this right. so in this respect the Anglican Church is part of a worldwide Christian uh, church and uh, we are at one uh, with people all over the world. Well I have to stop there uh, today, I haven't been able to go any further uh, but I'm going to come back to this so uh, if you keep your your notes um, uh, from this week I'll get back to them and uh, we'll carry on next week uh, with this exciting study.